Hey everybody, you are listening to Grace Bond Ministries. Grace Bond Ministries is about sharing the Word of God, having conversations about difficult topics, talking about apologetics, coming together, tackling issues, answering questions, studying the scripture, uh, doing devotionals. Listen, Grace Bond Ministries has so many different things that we're going to talk about, that we have talked about, we're going to continue talking about. Uh, and this podcast is made for someone who wants to know more about the Christian faith or wants answers to their questions or just wants to ask questions or just wants a safe place to talk about things, even things like politics, you know, abortion, uh, homosexuality, hell, you know, or just how do I have strong faith? That's what you're going to get when you listen to Grace Bond Ministries. So thank you so much for tuning in, and I hope you are blessed and encouraged by what we do here. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Grace Bond Ministries. We've got an exciting podcast this time. Uh, uh, this time we're going to talk about evidences for God. And I think and it's been a long time since I really focused specifically on uh, evidences for God. I mean, uh, I think I made one podcast, but that was over a year ago. It's probably two years ago now uh, since we talked about it. So I'm very excited about this. And uh, we have a, a recurring guest now. His name is Trent Blake. And uh, we actually, Trent and I, and uh, Christian, but uh, he tried. <laughs> it wasn't working very well. But anyways, we talked about uh, Molinism on the podcast uh, a few months ago. And so you can check that out uh, wherever you're listening to the podcast. You can go back and listen to the, uh, the Molinism podcast and how uh, God and foreknowledge and, and predestination and, and God's sovereignty, how all that works. But this time, uh, Trent is going to walk us through uh, his uh, PDF booklet about the evidences for God. All right. So we're super excited about this. And uh, so stay with us. Stay tuned. And we will be back here in just a moment. For it is by grace you are saved through faith, not of yourselves, but it is a gift of God. Ephesians 2.8. Welcome to Grace Bond Ministries. All right, welcome back. So listen, uh, like I mentioned in the introduction, we've got our special guest with us, our recurring guest, Trent Blake. And uh, Trent Blake is the editor-in-chief of Baseline Christianity. Um, which is uh, it's a website you can go check out some articles he's wrote and a couple other people have wrote. Uh, he seeks to help Christians deepen their love for God and in doing so equip them to replicate that love to others. Trent is a graduate of World Life Bible Institute and is currently taking online courses with Moody Bible Institute for pastoral ministry. He has also written for the revolution.com and has been featured in the best-selling Christian adult, young adult book, uh, Do Hard Things. And now he's written uh, a couple of PDF booklets that he is uh, willing to send you as well. So, um, and I've also got uh, Christian with me, uh, my co-host. Uh, we and him, uh, we've, we've been uh, back recording again together. We've got some awesome things planned for the future and uh, super interested in, in uh, what's coming up. So, uh, so this podcast is going to be a little different and uh, we're going to kind of turn the floor over to uh, Trent and have him just kind of uh, take it away. And then uh, we're going to maybe jump in here and, and uh, add a few things or maybe ask a few questions. Uh, but for the most part, we're just going to kind of let Trent talk and talk about his booklet and uh, some things like that. So, Trent, uh, we'll, we'll go ahead and turn it over to you. Well, I'm very glad. Thank you guys for having me on today. It's been uh, very, very fun. So I appreciate this last time was really great talking about Molinism. But this is a topic right here on the existence of God that I'm even more passionate about. This is 
such an important topic and it used to be taken for granted for hundreds of years and now people are like, does God even exist? In fact, that's actually the title of my booklet is Does God Really Exist? 10 Arguments for a Maximally Great Being. Maximally Great Being is just a fancy philosophical word for God. So basically, I have 10 different independent arguments to say, hey, based on this, we can conclude that the best explanation is that God actually exists. And so rather than walk through all 10, though we're, if you guys want to, we're more than happy to walk through any of those 10 that you want to. I want to highlight the probably the strongest arguments, my favorite ones, and that will probably be the cosmological argument for the existence of God, the moral argument for the existence of God, and then the resurrection argument for God's existence. And then, of course, there's a few others as well. You guys are welcome to check out the entire booklet. It's free on baselinechristianity.com slash ebooks. And so I have all those available along with a few different booklets, some on the historical reliability of the New Testament, on the problem of evil, and then just some interest that I've had about like comparing the differences between Calvinism, Arminianism, Moldism, etc. So it's kind of a wide variety of different books on there, but it's very apologetic centered in my uh, website. So I'm going to start with the cosmological argument for the existence of God. Basically, this argument is pretty simple. It basically says um, everything that has a beginning has a cause. The universe has a beginning. Therefore, the universe has a cause. And so basically, this simple uh, easy to understand argument basically says that um, our universe is not all there is. There has to be something that caused our universe. And so this is what's called a deductive argument where it has two premises and then a conclusion. And the idea is if an argument like this is sound, that means that it logically uh, connects where um, the, uh, the first premise basically lays out the criteria for truthfulness. The second premise follows through on that argument and then the third of the conclusion basically says based on these two premises this must be the result on pain of irrationality so if these first two if an argument is sound and the first two premises are accurate then on pain of irrationality you have to accept the premise whether you, or sorry you have to accept the conclusion whether you like it or not and so this type of argument is a very very strong uh, way of articulating well any kind of argument really and so for the existence of god we can show just using the simple logical syllogism that God actually exists. Well, let's walk through it right here, okay? The first premise says everything that begins to exist has a cause, or another way of saying it like I like to is a little bit easier. Everything that has a beginning has a cause. And so I think this is pretty self-explanatory. After all, we're not here recording and then Jonathan's not gonna be concerned that suddenly an elephant's gonna fall through his roof and just crush him out of no reason because, hey, it just popped into existence on top of his house. Who knows, you know? You don't have to worry about things. Yeah, I know, man. So there you go. Now I've got you worried. But but we don't have to worry that something's just going to just happen. There is, always has to be an explanation. We see this just through everyday experience. Everything that begins to exist has a cause. So that's pretty clear and self-explanatory. The second argument is also pretty clear and self-explanatory. The universe began to exist. For a few thousand years, um, a few thousand years ago, rather, some philosophers believed the universe has existed for all of eternity. But at the end of the day, that actually contradicts both logic and now modern day science. So I'll start with the logical um, rationale for this argument. It basically, logically, we know that it is impossible for there to be a, an actual past infinite number of events. So for example, think of it this. Imagine a man who is counting down. He's like 10, 9, 8, and goes all the way down to, to 1, and he goes 0. Whew. And you ask him, why are you so tired? What's up? Why are you, you're just counting 10. He's like, no, I've been counting for all of eternity and I, from negative eternity all the way down to zero. You'd say, you're a liar. I don't know what's, what's wrong with you. You're tired, whatever. I don't know. There's something wrong with you, man. Because the 
what we see just through observation is that it's actually impossible for someone to do anything in actual infinite number of times. So if he, for example, were to start counting, I guess that the, the, basically the idea is if someone were to truly count in, to an infinite number, they'd have to start an infinite number of time ago. But for someone to count an infinite number of time ago, they would have to continuously start somewhere prior to when they actually started. Does that make any sort of sense? So, yeah, basically, the idea would be it's actually impossible for him to start if he really was counting from past eternity. And so that's a philosophical reason why we can know that the universe um, actually had to have a beginning because there would always be an event prior to the first event. Now, logic, that's the philosophical reason, but actually, scientifically, we have some very strong evidence as well to say the universe does have a beginning. There is a recent, um, well, recent within the last 20 years, um, theorem, scientific theorem out there called the board guth valentum theorem. And this is by um, three scientists, Alan, Alan, Alvin Board, <laughs> sorry, Alan Guth and Alexander Valentum. And it was in 2009. And they basically came up with this uh, theorem that basically says that any universe like ours that is expanding must have had a beginning. In fact, uh, Alexander Valentin was on record to, to have said, and I quote, it is said that an argument is what convinces a reasonable man, and a proof is what it takes to convince an, even an unreasonable man. With the proof now in place, cosmologists can no longer hide behind the possibility of a past eternal universe. There is no escape. They have to face the reality of a cosmic beginning. And so we see that even the, the, uh, Valentin, who is not a Christian by any means, has to admit just based on the evidence that the universe that we actually live in has had a beginning. And so we see both philosophical arguments and you have some very strong philosophical arguments. I haven't even gotten into something called Herbert's Hotel or Hilbert's Hotel that basically philosophically demonstrates that it's impossible for there to be an actual infinite number of events in history in addition to the counting man analogy. But the scientific evidence just blows out of the water and says, listen, because of this, it's actually impossible that our universe is past eternal. And so we see that both premises are true. Everything with a beginning has a cause, and the universe that we live in had a beginning. Therefore, the cause, the, the universe has to have a cause. And so the question then, then comes, okay, what could this cause be? Why does this cause have to be God? Well, that actually goes into the second part. I expand the cosmological argument in my booklet into a second syllogism, and it says this, nothing can cause itself. Pretty self-explanatory. The universe is the entirety of time, space, and matter. That's literally the definition of the word universe. Therefore, the cause of the universe can't be time, space, and matter, which, I mean, that's pretty self-explanatory, but here's the third part, which proves that is actually God that is this cause. Only free agents, living beings, can perform actions without matter causing them to. The cause of the universe created the universe without matter causing them to, because matter didn't exist yet. Therefore, the cause of the universe is a free agent or a living being. And so what do you call a living being that's powerful enough to create the entire universe, smart enough to create the entire universe, <laughs> and wise enough to do it without the whole universe falling apart. I call that God. I don't know what you call that. <laughs> so that right there is the basically, in a nutshell, the cosmological argument for the existence of God. Does anyone have any questions on that? Uh, yeah, I just wanted to say, I mean, um, typically, I, I mean, from, you know, when you talk about apologetics or really anything, I mean, there's the popular level, and then there's the scholar level, you know, 
but I would say on the popular level among most people, the, the first response of someone who's not a Christian is going to be, uh, and you've, you've outlined this, you know, what you've already said. So maybe you could kind of uh, explain it directly. Yeah. Uh, is, you know, if, if God created the world and who created God, so, you know, I mean, what, what do you, how do you respond to that? Yeah, absolutely. So what I would say to that question is, okay, rather than answer directly and say, well, God just doesn't need a creator. Cause that seems kind of like special pleading where you're just saying, oh, my explanation doesn't need an explanation, but yours does rather I say, okay, you know what, let's put God to the side for a quick second and say, you know what, let's just not say it was God. Let's just ask what would be necessary to have been the cause of the universe. What, what characteristics would it be required to have? Well, the cause of the universe would have to be the cause of time, space, and matter, right? Okay, so if something were the cause of time, space, and matter, what could it not have? A beginning, why couldn't it have had a beginning? Because whatever caused time couldn't have had a beginning because beginnings and endings are the result of time. And so to use an analogy, whatever it is that caused this universe, maybe let's just call, say the universe is a line, drew this line. And if I were to ask, okay, where on the line is the person who drew the line? It doesn't make sense. It's a nonsense question. Or where on the painting is the painter? Where on the canvas is the painter? Or where on the number line is the mathematician? You see, all of these uh, questions are really misunderstandings of what's being said. And so with God, basically we're saying whatever caused the universe, whether you call it God or not, could not have been created, could not have had a cause because it is the cause of cause and effect. It is the cause of time. And so whatever this thing is, you don't have to call it God, has to be the cause of time, therefore it can't have a beginning, has to be powerful enough to create the whole universe, and it has to have free will because it is able to do something without matter causing it to do something else. And so when you put all these things together, a timeless, spaceless, eternal, all or powerful enough to create the whole universe, which is close enough to all powerful as we can get, so all, basically all powerful, incredibly intelligent, living being creates the whole universe. You don't have to call that God, but that's just the logical implications of what we see. And so, but I will say it's a very strange form of atheism that says that this sort of being created the whole universe and everything in it, but just isn't called God. So that's what I would say. Uh, Christian, did you have anything? I had one more clarification I wanted to add in there. Uh, can I, you, are, I'll just go ahead and throw it You can out. go ahead. I mean, the other thing, the other thing I think about this argument, um, you know, is that uh, this can't this can't be a standalone argument. I, I think I, I'm, I'm going to kind of present this as a question, but I mean, do you think this can be a standalone argument? I mean, does this uh, 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 does this prove that the God of Christianity is this God or this being, or does this say that there this is just makes it necessary for that being to be there? Um, you know, and I think about how Frank Turk went about it in his book, uh, how he led up to that and kind of narrowed it down to the monotheist, monotheistic religions mm -hmm. based on the cosmological argument. So what, what do you think about that? Yeah, so I would say that you might be able to imply the Christian God through this argument, but you could not prove that the God that is here, the cosmological God, the necessary being that created the whole universe, you wouldn't be able to necessarily prove beyond any reasonable doubt that this is the christian god you could say well this god that this totally self-sufficient god that created the whole universe you could say well it had to be able to be relationally self-sufficient and kind of appeal to the trinity in that sense and say well whatever this god is he he couldn't have needed his creation therefore it had to have other persons in a trinity i find that argument a little bit weak but you could say that um you could say that through this argument but i think that you're right it is 
it, basically what it does is says, okay, we're just eliminating atheism right here. That's basically what's happening. It could be Islam, it could be Christianity, it could be Judaism, or it could be whatever. Um, and so that's basically what this is doing right here. Okay. All right. I think we're uh, I think we're good there. We probably should go ahead and move on to the next one. Yes. Um, so the this is called the moral argument. This is probably one of my favorite arguments for the existence of God. Basically, the moral argument depends on our common human experience. And that's what makes this argument so powerful. Basically, let's see if I can find it real quick so I'm not misquoting. Let's see. Biological. Well, here it is. Basically, this argument, also a syllogism, says this. If God doesn't exist, objective moral values and duties also don't exist. But objective moral values and duties do exist. Therefore, God exists. And so once again, if these two first premises are true, then the conclusion is true on pain of irrationality, whether we like it or not. So basically the first question, if God doesn't exist, objective moral, moral values and duties don't exist. Is this true? Yes. When you look at the evidence, you see that for something to qualify as an objective standard for morality it has to be three things. Okay. First thing it has to be, it has to be transcendent. So what do I mean by transcendent? Why does it have to be transcendent? Basically, for something to be morally binding to all people across all of human history, it has to exist for all of human history. For example, if I'm the moral basis for all of uh, morality, the moment I die, no one has to do anything anymore. They can do, people can do whatever they want. And so that's why individual humans or even societies cannot be the basis for morality. It has whatever it is that causes moral values and duties has to exist across of all of eternity or at the very least across all of human history it has to be transcendent. So that's the first criteria for this objective standard. Secondly, it has to be authoritative. And basically the idea would be if someone were to say, hey, um, it is wrong to hurt your dog, right? If they say it's wrong to hurt your dog, but they don't have any authority to tell you that, they don't have a, a good reason why that what they're saying is true, that's just their opinion. Unless there is an actual authority that says, I have the right to tell you what to do, then there is no actual duty to that thing. So whatever it is that's causing morality, whatever it is that is grounding morality, has to be authoritative. And the third thing it has to be, it has to be personal. Why personal? Basically, for something to be authoritative, it has to be personal. That's simple as that. So that may seem kind of question begging at first, but let me ask you, if I were to say my chair has told me that I cannot hurt my dog, <laughs> you would say you're crazy. Your chair can't tell you to do anything. Your chair can't have authority over you. And so whatever it is that's causing morality has to be transcendent, authoritative, and personal. In fact, this is actually fairly uncontroversial even among atheists. You see Richard Dawkins who says, hey, listen, there is no such thing as objective morality. All there is is pitiless indifference is what he says. And this is a very, very common uh, belief among atheists. And honestly, the only consistent belief you can have as an atheist, that there actually is no objective morality because they don't believe in God because they know that God is needed for objective morality. Now, here's the problem, though. When you say this to basically anyone except a hardline Richard Dawkins or some other atheist, they're going to say, here's their objection. But objective morality exists. And all you have to say is, exactly. Therefore, premise number two is correct. If God doesn't exist, there's no objective morality. Objective morality does exist. Therefore, God does exist. Well, how do we know objective morality exists? That's just through intuitive what we see. We just know it's not just not our preference that the Holocaust happened. We know it is actually a horrible thing. We know intuitively 
that chopping up babies for fun is wrong. We know intuitively that torturing people is wrong. We know intuitively that gay bashing is wrong. We know that intuitively that racism is wrong. We know these things are objectively wrong. In fact, that's the whole basis for the problem of evil. The idea is if God is so good, why does all this evil happen? We can talk about that. But the idea is if evil exists, if wrong exists, then morality exists and therefore God exists. And so we see that there's no way out right here. You have to basically say that evil doesn't even exist to escape the reality of God. Yeah, that's good. Did, uh, Christian, do you have any questions or anything? I mean, I think this is a major one, especially now everything is uh, self-truth or self-help. And so we definitely see this kind of running rampant around the world is the argument against this, which if you boil it down to it, they don't have any argument. It's just what they want to believe. It's very, I mean, <clears throat> uh, I mean, a lot of times, uh, I think, uh, like I heard Bart Ehrman in a debate one time with, I don't remember who it was, but he was debating somebody on the problem of evil. Uh, I can see his face, but I can't think of his name. But he, anyways, you know, one of the things Bart Ehrman said um, was he, he, instead of having a logical argument, it turns to an emotional argument. And I think that's why this is, it's just so difficult. Um, you know, I don't think it's difficult to present the logic. I think it's difficult to, uh, to talk with people about this because I mean, nine times out of 10, if somebody's bringing up a, a, an issue of, about morality or ethics or whatever, um, and it's like a one-on-one -on -one conversation on, the, on a ministerial level or something like that, I mean, there's an actual event that has taken place, you know, and then, you know, you're talking about, you know, we're talking about morality that comes from God and God is the, you know, the objective morality comes from God, you know, uh, and, and it's like when we talk about the problem of evil in the midst of this, you know, they're kind of both connected. A little bit. I mean, not necessarily, but, uh, you know, they're, both, yeah. uh, you know, when we talk about that problem of evil, I mean, we're always, as Christians, we're always going to go back to the, to the objective you know, morality argument, but, uh, you know, it's very difficult because there is this emotional issue that happens with, with these things, but, uh, and then there's also other aspects, you know, and, uh, and it's interesting, you know, he's already went through two arguments and how many times has he quoted scripture, you know? And so it's not, this is not something that, you know, it's not circular reasoning, what we're going through here, you know, what he's going through. This isn't right. circular reasoning. Um, but then on the, on the flip side, when we're talking and, and ministering to people who are struggling with the problem of evil, then the scriptures come in as that encouragement and that, and that motivation. Um, I don't know, Trent, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, definitely. So I would say that when it comes to the problem of evil and suffering in this world, um, usually there are two different parts of it. There is the logical problem of evil. So answering, how is it logically possible for a good loving God to exist in these evil things to happen? But most of the time, the issue is not logical. The issue is emotional. It's, hey, man, I'm struggling. My, my, my mom died. This horrible thing happened to my sister or whatever it is. And so there's this emotional issue. The problem is when we try to address the emotional issue, they think their problem is the intellectual issue. And so it's catch-22 where if you answer the, the, the intellectual issue, they're like, but you're heartless. And if you answer the emotional issue, they're like, yeah, but you haven't answered the question. And so it's really hard. And basically, I think that um, the best way to go about this is through uh, long-term relational building compassion, asking lots of questions, saying, listen, I hear you. Like you're saying that this horrible things exist, all these things, I get it. Just kind of filling out the situation, saying, okay, are, are you looking for a logical explanation for this? Or are you looking for some reassurance that God loves you, kind of working through that some. Um, I actually have a booklet. You can also find the same thing on 
baselinechristianity.com slash ebooks, but you'll see I have a booklet called The Reasons for Suffering, and reasons being plural there for a reason, no pun intended. But you have right there, basically, hey, here's how you answer the logical problem of evil. If God exists, why is all these bad things happen? And then second part is, now here's how this proves God's existence. But then the third part says, okay, listen, we've done this logically, but some of you may feel really like alienated right now, like, man, like he doesn't care about my pain. I get that. And then we go into, okay, now how can we actually care for those who are really suffering in these issues? And so I think that the answer is a both and, hey, logically, these are some serious stuff that we need to work through. And I think that it's very clearly, it honestly proves God's existence that evil exists. That being said, there's still the, the real pain from real life that needs to be worked through as well. That's good. All right. Uh, we, uh, we better go ahead and move on. So now <clears throat> you're doing the resurrection argument? Yes. Okay. This is probably my favorite argument. The first two arguments basically just prove, like we talked about, that a theistic God of some sort exists, whatever that may be. Now, the question is, this God of the universe, how has he revealed himself? Is he one of these religious gods or is he some other God that we don't know about? How do we know? And so basically this argument um, is based on four very um, undisputed historical facts. In fact, well over 90%. I, want, I, I think the number is closer to like 98.7% of all historical scholars that are related in this field say, hey, these four things actually happened. And I don't know the exact percentage, but it's very close to that. Of course, you're always going to have outliers that are going to be like Holocaust deniers that say, oh, this didn't happen. The millennium was faked or whatever and everything. Yeah. You can say all these things, but when the vast majority are like, hey, some, I'm a Christian or I'm an atheist or I'm a Muslim or I'm a whatever, but I have to admit that this actually ha happens. And so these are four indisputable bedrock historical facts that we know happened in ancient history. And that's what this argument is based on these four facts. Fact number one is this, a Jewish rabbi named Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth was crucified by the, in the first century by Roman executioners. It is an indisputable fact of history. Two, Jesus' followers had real experiences after Jesus' death that they believed were appearances of Jesus risen from the dead. And whether they were right or wrong, we can discuss that, but everyone agrees with that. Three, Jesus' followers' lives were transformed as a result of this belief, even to the point of being willing to die for their newfound belief in Jesus' resurrection. And four, James and Paul, who were both enemies of Jesus' message, came to believe in Jesus' resurrection and became Christians as a result. Both claimed that the reason was that Jesus spoke to them after he had died. And so based on these four facts, the question is, what is the best explanation of these four facts? Now we know, based on these other two arguments and the many other arguments for the existence of God, that at the very least, the, exist, that the idea that God exists and did something here is a possibility at the very least. It's not like he's impossible. And I would say that it's pretty clear that he exists. All right, based on this, what's the best explanation? Here is the logical syllogism for the resurrection argument based on these facts. The accounts of Jesus' resurrection were either caused by conspiracy, mistaken belief in Jesus' death, an imposter, hallucinations, a misplaced body, alien intervention, textual corruption, or Jesus' actual resurrection. And I think alien intervention is just ridiculous, but I'm including it on there because that's what some people will say. Premise two, the accounts of Jesus' resurrection were not caused by conspiracy, mistaken belief in Jesus' death, an imposter, hallucinations, misplaced body, alien intervention, or textual corruption. Therefore, the only explanation that's left is the accounts of Jesus' resurrection were caused by Jesus' actual resurrection. And so basically, this argument basically says, with all of these facts available, 
the only reasonable explanation is that Jesus actually rose from the dead. How do you explain all four of these facts? Well, let's go through these alternative theories right here. Maybe it's a conspiracy. Basically, maybe the disciples all lied, and James and uh, James and Paul, who were enemies of Jesus, they lied and claimed they saw Jesus risen from the dead and died for this belief. But this has some serious problems. The idea that someone would die for something they know is false seems rather suspect. Like the terrorist attacks in 9-11. These are things where they died for something that we believe is false, that Allah would reward them for their genesis, for their horrible terrorism, right? They died for something they believe was false, but they didn't die for something they knew would be false, right? Martyrdom doesn't guarantee that what you're saying is true, but it does guarantee sincerity. It guarantees that you at least you believe it was true. It's not like these uh, terrorists were saying, man, I believe that Islam is false and I'm going to still be a terrorist. Like that doesn't happen right here. In the same way, these disciples, they didn't believe this was false and were like, all right, I'm going to die for this. I'm not going to, I'm going to get nothing out of it. I'm just going to die for this. And so the conspiracy theory fails. Well, maybe Jesus didn't really die. Maybe Jesus was uh, just fainted on the cross or this is called the swoon theory. Maybe he just swooned on the cross and then revived in the tomb. Problem with this theory is number one, it clearly contradicts these vast majority of scholars believe, and for good reason, that Jesus actually died. But another problem with this is just think through the logical implications of this. Basically, these Romans who were professional killers somehow forgot to make sure Jesus was dead, threw him in a tomb, he revives himself in this critical condition, comes out, was able, was able to crawl out of the tomb, roll away a stone from this tomb, escape, and basically crawl into town, get medical attention, pay for medical attention, even though he's this, in this horrible state, then over convinced his disciples that he had risen from the dead and hadn't simply survived the crucifixion. Do you find that compelling? I find that completely ridiculous. And especially when you look at the fact that in no, no case in human history has a single crucifixion, crucifixion victim ever, three um, crucifixion victims received a partial crucifixion were taken down and received the finest medical attention Rome had to offer, and two of them still died. And see, and not only that, but before the crucifixion, Jesus was actually scourged to the point where his internal organs were exposed, and he could have easily died from exposure. In fact, many crucifixion victims in ancient history died from exposure before they even got to a cross. And whether you say, well, maybe Jesus didn't really die on a cross beam, maybe he died upside down in an X beam or whatever, all that does is distract from the, the main point. And real, realistically, I've heard this objection, but at the end of the day, that just makes it worse. I mean, it's not like you're more likely to survive if you're upside down than if you're right side up. And so at the end of the day, the idea that Jesus didn't really die is at odds with, with history. And so we can see that the apparent death theory fails as well. Well, maybe the disciples were hallucinating. Maybe that they thought they saw Jesus after he died because they were like grief stricken. were like, man, I, I just wish Jesus was here. They thought they saw him. And then based on that, they're like, all right, I'm going to proclaim that he rose from the dead. The problem with this theory is multifaceted. multifaceted. One, this doesn't explain Jesus' appearances to the enemies of Jesus. We see well-documented history that both James and Paul were not followers of Jesus before he died and were quite happy that he died. (laughs) And so you're not going to have them. They don't have the the grief that would potentially cause this sort of hallucination. But in addition to this, you have the issue of, okay, the, the disciples who claim to see Jesus afterwards claim to do very tangible things with Jesus, like eat with him and do all these things with him. And they also claim to remember what each other said in these hallucinations. 
Hallucinations are a, a, an effort by a single person. Hallucinations are not a group effort. You don't remember what someone else hallucinated. You remember what you hallucinated. It's like saying, oh man, hey, I'm going to dream something. And hey, Jonathan, you want to dream what I'm dreaming with me right here? Let's go dream together. That doesn't work that way. <laughs> we don't dream what each other are doing in our dream. And so halluc the hallucination theory completely fails for those two reasons. Well, maybe I've heard this theory. It was kind of crazy, but I actually heard someone defend this theory that, well, maybe right as Jesus was dying, Jesus had an identical twin that came that no one knew about that came and saw Jesus died and decided he was going to play a prank on the disciples and pretend to be Jesus and start the Christian uh, message. Problem with this theory is one, I think Mary would know if she had an identical twin with Jesus. And so you have to say that Jesus was switched at birth and that some other person was thrown there and Jesus wasn't really Mary's daughter. You'd also have to say that this identical twin was smart enough to be able to pull the wool over their disciples' eyes, but also stupid enough to impersonate a man who had just been crucified by the most brutal regime in the entire uh, ancient world. It's really doesn't, it's not compelling at all, doesn't make any sort of sense, and it has many issues that along those lines as well. So that, that fails. Well, maybe, maybe it's possible that the mistaken tomb theory is possible. Maybe uh, the disciples went to a wrong tomb. They thought he's, he was resurrected, but then it was actually a wrong tomb. Maybe Jesus was somewhere else. The problem with this theory is if it was the wrong tomb, it doesn't explain the appearances to the disciples. It doesn't explain how Jesus, they believe they actually saw him. And same thing with the appearance to the enemies. Plus, if they just went to the wrong tomb, all that the enemies of early Christianity had to do is say, hey, here's the body. Jesus is still dead. You guys are morons. What's up with you? You can't be doing this. And so the mistaken tomb theory fails as well. Alien intervention. I'm just not convinced anytime someone says, well, just aliens did it. You know, like it's, it's crazy. But you also have some pretty strong evidence that alien life, as much as we love Star Trek or Star Wars, alien life just isn't compelling. In fact, let me quote astrophysicist Hugh Ross where he says, the conditions necessary for life are so finely tuned they are unlikely to occur anywhere else in the universe. The probability of even one of the numerous uh, parameters necessary for life being just right by accident is incredibly small, let alone all of them together. The pre precise values of the physical constants, the location of the Earth and the Milky Way galaxy, and the size and the position of the moon are just a few examples of the many factors that must be right for life to exist on the planet. The odds of finding these conditions present in one place by chance are infinitesimally small. And so based on this, it is incredibly unlikely that life were to occur anywhere else. And even if life were to occur somewhere else, the idea that the, these aliens were somehow able to transport Jesus' body out of the tomb and impersonate him for these people with no potential motivation that we see and that it's just incredibly ad hoc. It's basically just saying, I'm just going to throw out this theory with no evidence for it whatsoever, with no uh, no evidence pointing towards this. And we're assuming that these aliens would have this sort of technology that we see in Star Trek, which we don't even know if it's possible to transport things. I just find it completely irrelevant and just ridiculous. I'm only bringing it up because it's a very popular level argument to this. Well, maybe it was just aliens. And at that point, if you're going to uh, say, well, maybe it was like some kind of interdimensional alien, why not just say God did it? I mean, that is a much uh, more... Um, it makes more sense of the data than the idea that some interdimensional alien did this. That really just shows desperation more than anything. The final uh, alternative theory is textual corruption. The idea that, well, maybe this stuff never really happened. It just texts have been corrupted over time. 
problem with this theory is one, the New Testament is very clearly historically reliable, but two, even if it isn't, these four facts that we're basing this off of is not just the Bible. These four facts is the clear consensus of all historical scholars from all walks of life, whether or not they believe that the Bible is historically reliable or not. And so based on this, we see that the only reasonable explanation from this is that Jesus actually rose from the dead. And if Jesus rose from the dead by divine power, then God exists. And if God exists, then, well, there go, there's the, our argument right there. And if God chose to raise Jesus from the dead, he authenticates Jesus' claims, he endorses what Jesus said, and therefore Christianity is true. All right. Uh, I like what John Lennox said one time. He's like, you really think a guy was, I forget who he was debating, one of, probably Dawkins. He said, you really think somebody was resurrected from the dead? And Lennox said, I'll give you one better. I believe God took on the form of a man. He, he actually kind of put that above the resurrection as far as, uh, as far as something miraculous or amazing. Uh, I can't remember if he, I can't remember if Dawkins had said that about the resurrection or about the creation of the world period, but uh, one of those. Two. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, so I, we're out of time now. Uh, there's a lot more we could say on that. Uh, just the fact that, that Trent was able to get through three major arguments in uh, close to 30 minutes is, is impressive, you know? So uh, yeah. You know, the whole point of this, I'll go ahead and give my closing thoughts and then pass it around uh, to Christian and then back to Trent. Um, you know, uh, the, the cool thing about this is that Trent's got this this PDF. And so you can go on his website. Uh, the, I'll put the uh, the link to his website in the description. Um, but, uh, you know, you can go to baselinechristianity. Is it .com or .org? .com. Okay. So you can go to baselinechristianity.com. Uh, and I'll put, the, I'll put the link directly to where the PDFs are. Um, you can go through this, and, and not only that, you can also send it to somebody, you know, and and maybe that'll uh, maybe this will help you kind of start a conversation, or uh, you know, just say, hey, listen, you know, I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure this is probably close to you know 40, 45 minutes, but uh, you know, say, hey, would you be willing to sit down and listen to this for 40, 45 minutes, and then uh, you can kind of start that discussion, and then maybe they'll read the PDF or whatever. Um, and, I, and, and just looking at the PDF, he closes it with, you know, the gospel. You know, this is all not just so we can win an argument, but so people will put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you know. So, uh, uh, but, you know, these, this kind of helps uh, take down those walls that people build. Uh, I mean, just go listen to the, the story of Lee Strobel and how he came to faith or James Warner Wallace and how he came to faith. Uh, you know, just kind of go, go, go check out those guys. And a lot of guys have some very powerful testimonies that come through apologetics. And uh, William Lane Craig has been critiqued multiple times that he spends too much time on apologetics and nobody's getting saved. And William Lane Craig's like, on the contrary, let me, and then he, you know, he reads through 20 quotes and then, <laughs> you know, these people have put their faith in Christ because of that. So, uh, but anyways, I just want to say thank you, Trent, for coming on um, and uh, very, very, uh, very thankful for this. And thankful for uh, your website and, and what you do and uh, for making this PDF available and for free. Uh, really appreciate that. So, Christian, if you want to give some closing thoughts and then uh, you know, pass it over to Trent. Yeah, I think it's good that you can just even in this video, people can go through and they can just take it argument by argument. Just listen to 15 minutes of one argument and then kind of stop it. Think about that and then take it chunk by chunk. And this is just a few of the arguments he has on there just to prove the existence of God. And it shows how God made logic and reason to prove himself, not only by scripture, but through our minds that he has given us. And he gives us understanding of all these things. So I was glad I was able to sit in on this podcast since I wasn't able to the last one. So thank you for coming, Trent, joining us.
Well, I appreciate that. That's very uh, kind of you guys to invite me on here. I really appreciate it very much. I'll just say to any of you guys who are listening that the reality of God's existence is self-evident. It says right in uh, Romans chapter 1 that um, God exists, basically, and that we are without excuse because um, he has made his existence clearly known for all of us to see. And so from this, we should be um, thankful that God has made himself clearly known for all of us and said, hey, not only do I exist, but I have shown a way that you can receive eternal life. And that is through Jesus on the cross in the first century, we see in him rising from the dead, proving that he is God, proving that what he has said is true, and that Christianity as a result of that is true. So my encouragement to you guys would be, if you're listening, hey, if you're not really convinced of all these things, just look into it at the very least. Because if this is true, if Jesus really did die for our sins and Jesus really did rise from the dead, if God really does exist, then that means that eternal life is possible. And also means that for those who are still in their sins, who have committed moral crimes against each other and against God, we have to face judgment for those things. And so this is a very serious thing. It's, it's not a good news for you if you are um, still in your sins, but it can be for anyone who believes. It says in scripture that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You've got to hand your life over to Jesus and through that you can be saved from your sins. All right, that's the finish of this podcast. Uh, listen, uh, go check out some of this. So check out the Molinism podcast. Uh, check out Baseline Christianity, some of the articles. Uh, you know, there's some uh, really good things on there. Uh, again, we just appreciate Trent for coming on, and uh, we're sure I'm sure you'll you'll see him again on the podcast in the future. Uh, we've we've had a we had a lot of different things. We're like, well, we can talk about this. We can talk about this. We can talk about this. And and uh, I said, oh, let's talk about the evidences of God because we haven't we haven't done something like that in a while on the podcast. So. Um, so yeah, very thankful for that. We will see you all on the next podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Please like, share, subscribe, uh, whatever you can do to help get the, uh, get the message out there. You know, we want people to, uh, we want people to, to grow and learn and, uh, we just uh, ask for your help in, in, in doing that. So, all right, we will see you all on the next podcast. God bless. Thank you so much for watching the Grace Bond Ministries podcast or listening to the podcast. Uh, I know there's various ways that you could be listening to this right now or watching this right now, uh, but I just want to say thank you so much. And uh, if you would, uh, wherever you're listening, if you're listening on YouTube, you know, subscribe to the YouTube channel, um, podcast, please you know, leave a five-star review and uh, write a little thing in there. If you're on Facebook, you know, leave a comment. Uh, let me know how this impacted you or uh, even any other questions or comments or concerns you may have. Um, and also, if you have an idea or you have something you'd really want to talk more uh, deeply about, you can always email me at gracebondministries at gmail.com. But thank you so much. Remember, for it is by grace you are saved through faith and not of yourselves, for it is the gift of God. Thank you for listening to Grace Bond Ministries. Thank you.